Welcome to the 12th episode of my literary analysis podcast, Night Reader. Throughout the last 11 episodes, I've been moving through Moby Dick for you guys, and my own perception of it, while uncovering Herman Melville's philosophies, the dark symbolisms throughout the story, and all of its underlying themes, as well as telling it in a way that anybody could understand, just in case you haven't had the chance to move through this wonderful story, whatever that reason may be. Now, the many themes I speak of in this book are ever-present throughout its pages. Herman Melville so easily puts on display all that is in his heart, and so blatantly he wears it on his sleeve. We can see clearly that the main character, Ishmael, is indeed, in reality, Herman Melville. In knowing this, we can dissect his character by reading through the novel. However, oftentimes the themes of humanity are hidden behind verbosities or analogies or deep poetic insights. Herman writes with elegance few have ever matched, and he used history, emotion, religion, and much more to intense effect on the reader. It's easy to be thrown off by this book initially, but I welcome you to join me, for this novel should be enjoyed by everyone. It's full of humanity, beautiful imagery, brotherliness, love, deception, divine intervention, revenge, deceit, and even darker and lighter virtues. It is a book that is open to interpretation in so many ways. Something I speak of in my first few episodes is typology and the way Herman used it to great effect. It's a way of smartly referencing ancient societies and texts, such as ancient Greece or the Christian Bible, to provide the reader with underlying themes, strong foreshadowing, and so much more. I'm here to help you move through all this knowledge and place it in front of you in a neat and digestible meal for your mind. I hope you go back and listen to the beginning, because my episodes are great in order, best for understanding, and I hope you enjoy. This episode is incredibly exciting and eventful. Our stage is set. Our themes of vengeance are pouring through. Ishmael, or Herman Melville, is a clear-minded and well-rounded man. A man who loves his brothers despite heritage and has strong mannerisms. There are many, many examples we can see through the first five episodes only and further on. Now, Ishmael's newfound and great friend, the cannibal and tattooed Queequeg, is the same. We have our three mates, Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask with their respective harpooners, Queequeg, Tashtigo, and Dagoo, the mighty Captain Ahab, and we will soon see why he is so mighty. He's brought this crew aboard for a dire act of vengeance upon a whale that took his leg. It's all disguised as a normal whaling voyage, though. He is definitely deceiving his crew in many ways. In this episode, though, we will see how he tricks the crew into agreeing to join him in the hunt. Ishmael has some short thoughts on Ahab here, though. Ahab, a terrible man, some say, but strong-willed is he, undoubtedly. Terrible, indeed. Cunning, yes. Would he really bring his crew down for such a terrible cause? Ah, I should have listened to that street prophet Elijah. The 
that ghostly crew I saw the morning of. All the bad omens I experienced. Peter Coffin at the spouter. The two hanging nooses. The reference to the biblical prophecy. It's all too much. But what can a man at sea do now? But his daily job in a hold the line. Could we overthrow such a terrible man? I doubt it. We are under his thumb. I asked for adventure, and I got it. Aye. The Cabin Table, Chapter 34, goes into some humorous descriptions about the hierarchy of this ship and its officers. Let's get right to it. Great little chapter here. Evening is closing in on the Pequod. We see a new character, referred to as, simply, Doughboy by his mates. The steward, who was in charge of the captain's meals aboard ship. Not only that, but his face was round and white, resembling a piece of unneeded dough. He comes up and announces to Captain Ahab that dinner is served. Ahab hardly seems to notice as he's observing the sun from the back of the vessel. He rises, catching hold of the shrouds, large metal bars that hold the mast up. He says, Dinner, Mr. Starbuck, and disappears down the scuttle into the cabin. Ahab is referred to as a sultan here, or a prince or king. In some forms of Muslim culture, the word emir is a general term for rulers or military commanders. And so the first emir, or Starbuck, first mate, waits until he can no longer hear the thud of Ahab's wooden leg, or ivory leg. Starbuck rises, takes a quick look about the binnacle, which is a small wooden stand where compasses were placed. And he says, dinner, Mr. Stubb, heads down the scuttle. Second mate Stubb also seems to purposely delay himself for a minute or so before heading down himself. The third emir, third mate Flask, sees himself all alone. He looks around, smiles a bit, and enjoys his short moment without duty. He kicks off his shoes, does a sailor's dance referred to as a hornpipe, takes off his hat and tosses it up on the mizzen shelf, or about halfway up the backmost mast. It lands perfectly, as if it was a shelf. As he heads down, he walks freely, but just before he enters the cabin doorway, he straightens his back and his face, walks in calmly. We, as the reader, see the effect Ahab has on his mates, the power that he has over them. He truly is their ruler and commander here at sea. He owns them by contract. And back then, when you signed a contract, it was you signed your life. It was a true, uh, it was held by law that you had to refer to captain as sir and your mates as mister and aye aye and all that stuff in return, or else you would be held against the law, essentially. He is their dictator. Ishmael says they enter the room as objectus, or as a slave. At this point, Ishmael talks about some differences. Above deck, the mates have some kind of power, some kind of defiance and energy around their captain. But the second they are all alone in a room, their humbleness comes forward. He sits at the head of the table as a king. Ishmael asks, 
what is the difference from up here to down there? It's almost comical. He makes a biblical reference here, some typology that I mentioned. He mentions a king from the Christian Bible, Belazar, king of Babylon. This king once had a great feast of bread and wine for over a thousand guests. Ishmael mentions that when one hosts guests to a meal, it is almost magical force that leads the guests to be in utmost gratitude. He says he who has dined his friends has tasted what it is like to be king. And so, Ahab sits at the head of the long ivory inlaid captain's table, like a mute sea lion on a white beach, surrounded by his wild but respectful cubs. They sit in silence as Ahab serves himself. They were like little children to him. All eyes were on his knife as he carved the dish in front of him. Ahab motions towards Starbuck's plate and serves him. Starbuck slowly cuts his meat, as if he didn't want to even scratch the plate and make a sound. As they all ate in awful silence, Stubb was relieved to hear a rat make a racket down in the hold. He stomped at the decks below. And poor little Flask, he seemed the youngest child of the table. Ahab never forbade them to serve themselves, but Flask wouldn't dare. He wouldn't even grab butter for his biscuit. Whether he assumed he wasn't of status to deserve it, or that butter was a high commodity, we do not know. But as a reader, we definitely feel bad for him at this point. After their dinner, they went up the opposite order they came down, and the table was quickly and sloppily set for the head harpooners. The wild Queequeg, Tashtigo, and Dagu. If you'll remember, they are all foreigners. Queequeg from some cannibalistic island, Tashtigo, a gay-headed Indian, and Dagu, a tall African man. The poor small white steward boy would hurry in and bring plates of food before them as they wildly chewed and gnashed at their plates. It was a wild contrast to ten minutes before. If the steward was not quick in his bringing the plates, Tashtigo, a long-haired Indian, would dart a fork at his backside like a harpoon. They even hazed the poor boy and held him down, getting him ready for a scalping as Tashtigo pulled out his knife. They were only playing with the boy, though. It's hilarious as Herman Melville describes the poor steward boy's life as one continual lip quiver. He'd hide in his little pantry, peeping out, waiting for them to finish their monstrous meal. Queequeg's cannibalistic smack of the lip sounded horrid to the steward boy, who nearly checked his own arm for teeth marks. The huge and long-limbed Dagu sat on the floor. We are told to feel bad for this guy. He fares hard, he who waits on a cannibal. He should carry not a napkin on his arm, but a shield. Eventually, they leave back above deck, and their meal is finished. Now, I need to read you an incredible quote from the final paragraph of this chapter. Then I will explain it in my understanding. I quote, Socially, Ahab was inaccessible, though nominally included in the census of Christendom. He was still alien to it. He lived in the world as the last of grizzly bears lived and settled Missouri. As when spring and summer have departed, that wild Logan of the woods, burying himself in the hollow of a tree, lived out the winter there, 
sucking his own paws. So, in his inclement, howling old age, shut up in that caved chunk of his body, there fed upon the sullen paws of its gloom. Unquote. So here Ahab is referred to as a grizzly bear going into hibernation and an Indian tribe that was wiped out by white men living in his own small and sheltered world. In his old age, Ahab has retreated into the depths of his mind without any sustenance, without any relief whatsoever. He's shut up inside that cold dead trunk in his gloom. The symbolism here is drawn out for us plainly. He's a pained man. We know this. A madman. Now that chapter was provided here for some comic relief and also to exasperate the effect Ahab has on his men. Now we're greeted to a short and wonderful chapter narrated by our own Ishmael. It is called The Masthead, chapter 35. It is one of my favorite short chapters full of wonderful reflection and Ishmael discussing why a captain should never put an absent-minded sailor atop the masthead to keep weather watch or watch for whales. So, the masthead. This is a spot at the top of the mast, the tip-tip-top, where the cross trees meet. The Tagalant mast, which is the highest mast. A lot of ships will have a crow's nest or a small basket-like structure that offers some form of protection from the wind and elements. Upon whaling vessels, though, there existed no such thing. Only two rods that you would place your feet on, and a type of balancing act. Ishmael describes it in great detail, the loftiness and serenity of it all, hundreds of feet up in the air, alone. It seemed you were walking along the ocean on giant stilts with great lofty strides. He makes a point saying that the master constantly manned, from leaving port to returning, until the very last minute. Ishmael reflects upon some historical topics and again displays his worldly knowledge. Ishmael reflects upon some historical topics and again displays his worldly knowledge. Let's move through these references as they're all very cool. Ishmael guesses that the earliest standards of maths were the Egyptians. He has researched the subject thoroughly. He says that Babylonians were a close second, but since their great tower fell to the winds of God, apparently, he gives the Egyptians the edge over them in this instance. He says Egyptians were a nation of masthead builders, and not only for the sea. But he alludes to the pyramids, and how they must have been used as a sort of astronomic lookout for new stars in the sky. If you ever get a chance to see a historical ship that's fully rigged, take a look at how high the Tagalant mast is, or ask your history instructor. On a three or four year voyage, the total collected hours you would spend standing up there would amount to three or four entire months. So it's a shame that somewhere you spend so much time is so uncomfortable, particularly in cold weather, with no protection from the elements. You'd freeze if not for a thick jacket. Ishmael mentions an old whaler called Captain Sleet, who is believed to be the Arctic explorer for Britain, William Scoresby. He invented a type of enclosed crow's nest. Current whaling vessels were unclad of that sort of thing, though. However, in this current tropic of warm weather, the ship is in a total trance, 
rolling and rocking along as you sail through the lofty airs. It's truly a carefree feeling that you lulled into up there. You don't worry about what you'll be eating for dinner. All your meals for the next three years are safely stocked in barrels below. You don't read the newspaper up here, hear no news, no domestic arguments, no unnecessary excitements. Ishmael would climb halfway up the second mast, comfortable and free, in a leisurely fashion even. He'd chat with Queequeg or anyone off duty he may come across, then up to the topsail yard, where he would swing a leg over and take a look out across the watery fields. Then up to his final destination, the Tagalant Crossyards. Ishmael admits to the reader that he's very bad at keeping watch for anything at all while up there. This high altitude brings on deep thoughtfulness, wondrously floating across the sea as if in a dream. Ishmael's depression that led him to sail in the first place. How could anyone keep good watch up here? He warns ship owners of Nantucket to be wary of who you take sailing aboard your vessel. As any imaginative lad that's interested in topics such as philosophy are sure to daydream up there. He mentions and quotes a character from a poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, written by an English poet referred to often as Lord Brian. It's a lengthy and melancholy poem about a young depressed man that travels the seas. Now that's a very general description. He says that character would perch himself upon the masthead of whatever ship he was on. He says, like, like that character, he perches himself up on the masthead, and he says, I quote, Roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean, roll. Ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over thee in vain. Unquote. The original quote says ten thousand fleets, not ten thousand blubber hunters. The mixture of waves and thoughts to the absent-minded philosopher brings on an opium-like vacantness of the mind until you practically leave your body in an act of astral projection lucid dreaming. As you gaze into the deep blue bottomless soul of the sea, you see your own depths, all of the elusive thoughts as creatures that swim by in a way just out of sight. This mood enchants and haunts you until your spirit seems to return to wherever it originally came, dispersed through time and space, like sprinkled ashes that form a part of every beach and shore around the earth. The body becomes lifeless, except that rocking life of the softly rolling ship, pressed from the sea, the sea swayed by the tides of God. But in this lulled dreamlike state, if you slip your hold or your foot even an inch, your identity flashes back into you in horror. Over deep maelstrom you float, and perhaps, during the most beautiful time of the day, with one short scream, you drop through the transparent air into the summer sea, no more to rise forever, as Ishmael or Herman puts it. I implore you to read this chapter for yourself. His language is wonderful. He mentions Desarchian Vortices, which is a swirling mass of sea that an ancient philosopher once theorized the universe was made of. A wonderful chapter. I hope you read it for yourself.
see the strong reflection in Ishmael's deep attitudes, sometimes deeper than the depths of the ocean, it seems. We hear so much of Melville's brilliance here. He brings in comedy, despair, so many different corners come to a unison, and it's uh, it's really cool to see how he does that. Uh, I wanted to thank you guys so much for joining me on this shorter episode. Got another one coming out tomorrow. It's going to be the big episode where Ahab turns his crew. Place yourselves in the shoes of the character at hand. Now, place yourself in the shoes of the character at hand. It can be difficult to do with the societal and historical gaps between now and then. But if we do, we find ourselves in a world where knowledge truly is power. Times change, but these moments are held forever in history. As if in stone slabs, these words ring true in their permanence. Pick up these books. Fight through them with all you will. For when you emerge, you are sure to find something changed inside of you. Something only you can reflect upon by being another. It is very intriguing to bridge that gap in your mind. I hope you'll all join me in this wonderful journey of mine. Please follow me on Facebook, Instagram. Leave me good reviews if you enjoy what I have to offer. My show is free and will remain free. It's a labor of love and if you have any poetry that you write, if you're a poet, or a beginning or a pro, whatever, or if you have writings that you would like to share with me, send them to nightreadercast at yahoo.com or comment or DM me on Instagram and I'll share on my show. I don't pick and choose. I share everything that's sent to me. If you're looking for some inspiration or you need someone to talk to, I'm here as well. So uh, I love talking to my listeners and I love talking about mental health and music, art, games, sports, all kinds of cool things. Uh, if you're local to the San Francisco area, uh, you can always hang out with coffee, watch some fog. Thank you all for listening. This episode was recorded by Dylan C. So go on, flip your pages. Drop your sword, pick up your pens and reading spectacles. Let us read on.